So, next mission, <laughs> we're going to knock off a glazer. <laughs> Fortunately, we're playing a Dark Sun, and the only thing we have an abundance of are sand and heat. Oh, good. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Hideout in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 237 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about stealing, cribbing, I don't know, copying wholesale from one of our favorite systems forged in the dark. But first, the party goes CSI in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the Night Fox steals hearts and prizes in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Fish in the Pot and the One Page Dungeon Collection. Hey, you probably already know this because droves of gamers backed the Fish in the Pot One Page Dungeon Collection on Kickstarter, raising over 2,000% of the fundraising goal. Shane, did you know that's 20 times the fundraising goal? Hmm, I wonder where you did that math so quickly. <laughs> So the collection is now publicly available, and for a limited time, you can get it for 25% off the cover price at fishinthepot.itch.io. That's I-T-C-H dot I-O. Did you know that that's one quarter off the cover price, Ishan? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> you just take the price, multiply by three quarters, and that's the price you pay. Multiply by three quarters? I prefer to divide by four thirds. Oh, oh. wait, what? <laughs> All right, so the Fish in the Pot one-page dungeon collection features 15 short dungeons that Yes, are... thank you. Get to the copy and the actual product. <laughs> yes, <laughs> why don't we do that? <laughs> 15 short dungeons that are quick to read, simple to prep, and fun to play. They're full of character and fully compatible with the fifth edition of the world's most popular fantasy role-playing game. Did you know that that means there are at least four prior editions? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are at least four and a half prior editions, actually. <laughs> it's, it's closer to five. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, this is a, actually a really cool collection. Um, they put out there, it, it did really well on Kickstarter. It's now available to everybody. Um, these dungeons are, are great for like kind of reading and processing quickly. If you, if you need a one shot or you just need something small to drop into your game, you know, kind of a... Uh, another obstacle to add to your campaign i think is a, a really neat collection yeah i always want a small dungeon in my back pocket in case the party really screws things up which is almost constantly yeah congratulations you're now in this dungeon yep. in jail <laughs> <laughs> how did we get here teleportation <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> also you ignored literally every clue i gave you <laughs> right <laughs> All right, so if that sounds fun, check it out at fishinthepot.itch.io. And if you uh, if you want to back another Kickstarter, then check out the Descent into Midnight Kickstarter, which goes live this Saturday, February 15th. I think this one's going to do really nicely, too. Uh, it is the brainchild of friends of the show and friends in real life, Rich Howard, Taylor Labresh, and Richard Kreutz Landry, as well as a team of other interesting, lovely people who I am mm. tangentially connected to because I'll be copy editing this thing. Yeah, I was going to say there's a team of lovely people like Palomi SP and no one on this show N nope <laughs> not at all i'm certainly not lovely come yeah, on <laughs> you're, you're doing the work you're just not a lovely person it's on the team <laughs> lovely people and me <laughs> so this is a pbt engine game where characters are inhabitants of an ocean planet which planet shane uh we'll decide when we start playing Ishan. that's actually a really cool thing about this is like you sit down for your first session and then you figure out what the planet looks like, what society is like, and and then even what your species are. It could be pretty much anything that you want it to be. I played in um, a Descent in a Midnight game where two of the characters were like sentient concepts that cities were named after. Mm -hmm. Gods then, huh? Yeah, but not with not with the power of gods. Is, okay. It, there's a lot of explanation, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's how I feel about every single time I've heard somebody explain or talk about their Descendant Midnight game. Like, it is a, 
imminently ephemeral in that like it exists so wholly at the table that you're a part of um and and it is just like perfectly tailored to that table every time yeah it's almost like everyone is always like oh i guess you had to be there to really understand exactly what we were talking about right (laughs) but yes it's a very cool system uh we got a chance to play it i guess it was sort of out of playtest phase but you know, uh, get, I played it in playtest phase because we redesigned my. We gave feedback. <laughs> they redesigned my whole uh, my whole playbook <laughs> because of me. That's why it's the worst one. Uh huh. I'll never tell. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, the art that they've had trickling out now for the game is simply gorgeous. The cover is phenomenal. It's it's going to be a really cool product. Yeah. So check it out at descentintomidnight.com and there's a link to the Kickstarter. All right, so Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Karnath, in the insular city of Vedakir, the party is chasing a killer. Yeah, so we were invited to Vedakir by Colonel Darian Ephraim, who we discover is dead, and also discover that he's not Colonel Darian Ephraim of the Ondarian army at all, but is instead Ephraim Diorian of the dragon-marked house, House Orion, uh, that explains how he was able to get all those Orion couriers to find find us all and deliver an expensive lightning rail ticket and draw us all back to Vedakir. Yeah. Hmm. So the Carnathi inspector, Sigor, who is investigating the murder, leaves them alone so that they can say goodbye to their friend. And... You know, like, while he has been dismissive of the party's abilities, he doesn't really like that they're foreigners, he doesn't really like that they probably fought on opposite sides of the war that ended just a few years ago, he does seem genuinely committed to actually solving this murder. So, I mean, I guess that's something. Of course, as soon as he leaves, Decimus and Lenore begin an autopsy. Mm-hmm. Begin chopping up the body. <laughs> so, first things first, they determine the dragon mark is real. And they can do that because both of them are, of course, dragon-marked. Uh, Decimus is House Caneth, and Lenore is House Thrashk. They also determine that Ephraim is unharmed, except that he has been drained completely of blood, and there appears to be no other cause of death. Yeah, they can't even find a puncture wound. He just doesn't have any blood. The entire body is also covered with a very fine black dust, and Warden, your character, who's a druid, analyzes it like looks at it very closely and he determines that it's it's organic like it it's from something that was once alive but there's something very unnatural about it that he can't quite place now as players of course <laughs> we have a strong inclination of what this dust is <laughs> finally upon close inspection decimus notices that ephraim's entire body has been dissected and then expertly reassembled he's got a minute incision across his entire neck, his arms, uh, each of basically his joints, his wrists and elbows and midsection and legs. And judging from the very tiny scarring, uh, Warden and Decimus put their heads together and determined that this was done while he was alive, not after he died. With that disturbing revelation, the party leaves the body in the morgue and heads to the sanatorium where Ephraim had been receiving treatment. That was why he was in Vedakir. So they argue with the door attendant, who also was relatively xenophobic, but is very open to a bribe. Uh, and then they find out that multiple Undarians have actually been staying in the sanatorium long term. They head on upstairs, and who do they meet but... Sergeant Bach, the dwarf who helped them repair the arcane ballista on that muddy battlefield four years prior. And Bach confesses that he, Cien, Margana, and Ephraim have all had those bloody nightmares for several years, and that they came to this hospital in order to recuperate. And it serves many veterans of the war from all sides who are suffering from shell shock and PTSD and other, you know, mental maladies. But while they're chatting, Decimus just checks Bach out to make sure that there's no foul play going on. And he notices a tiny scarred incision around Bach's neck, just like the one on Ephraim's body. Uh, And he realizes that Bach's head has been severed and then reattached, obviously while he was still alive. And Decimus has a hunch and decides to act on it. He excuses himself to go to the bathroom. And there in a stall, he completely undresses and he checks his own body. 
and he realizes he too has been dissected. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are talking about stealing from Forged in the Dark. So this topic has kind of been a long time coming, I think, uh, probably since the first moment we read Blades in the Dark, uh, and then kind of pushing through to running Stream of Blades and, and kind of really getting deep into Band of Blades as one of the Forged in the Dark games. Um, and then I think what finally pushed it over the edge was culminating in the past couple sessions that we played of Dark Sun, where we're sitting around the table and going, you know what handles this really well? You know, like all this minutia we're dealing with here in D&D? Fortune the Dark Games handle this better. Maybe we should just make an engagement roll. Do we have any <laughs> clocks? Can we get exactly. a clock? Exactly. So many times we have said over the past couple of months, you know what's good for this? An engagement roll so we can stop pixel I mean that that's our party right like our particular group of friends sitting at a table is hey let's plan every minute detail and then decide we're not going to do that right (laughs) let's let's ensure it does not survive first contact so I think this is an interesting topic because we've done multiple topics on how to like adapt other media how to like um, pull in content in order to plan out uh, your sessions but I think this is the first time we've really talked about a specific game system that you can grab ideas from and then smash into other systems yeah and i think this works specifically with forge in the dark games because they have like it doesn't have as unified of of a core mechanical base as other games do right like it's it's structured it's more structured into phases um it it has like you know like a resource management like connector that that ties everything together but it doesn't necessarily like confine you to mechanics in that way so it's not like trying to pick a um you know like the sanity system out of uh out of like a a warhammer 40k game and then adapt a range of penalties to that to a DD character right like to make them mechanically relevant because like the mechanical connections tend to be very light in a lot of these like kind of story oriented mechanics within forge in the dark Right, but Forge in the Dark has these nice sort of like um, self-contained subsystems that you can snag for a very specific purpose. Exactly. So the, the, the three things that we're going to talk about today are engagement roles, clocks, and structured downtime. All right, so what's an engagement role? People have definitely heard us mention it before, probably just making a joke. Okay, so the, the general like flow of a forge in the dark game is you have a mission right and you spend a little bit of time kind of making a plan for how you approach that mission right you define your first step um, and once you make that plan then you simply roll to see how the pcs are doing in the moment where the action starts um, so this role will be modified by various factors so like whether the plan exploits a weakness of your target or whether it's going up against their strength, uh, whether it leverages contacts or help, if you spent some resources, gathered some intelligence, things like that, right? Um, in, in other games, you might need special tools and that gives you a bonus or lacking those tools gives you a penalty, things like that. And the outcome of that roll, it's just a single die roll, right? It tells you what position the party begins the story in whether that is desperate risky or controlled desperate basically means you are scrambling things did not go right uh off the bat Um, right and you know you can come up with whatever reason that might be um if it is risky it means yeah there were some challenges you were able to overcome them but things things are going okay but one wrong step and it could be very bad yeah, and then controlled is this is pretty much going according to plan. You are, you know, in a strong position and you feel like you can move forward without uh undue risk. Right. And and what I like about those three things is like in the mechanics of Forge in the Dark, sure, that has meaning, right? Like that influences what you do. But like if you're trying to adapt that to D D, like what is a desperate situation in D D? <laughs> like you're overwhelmed by orcs or you just set off a trap, you know, like you can adapt that to your situation, just using that as your keyword rather than necessarily needing to build mechanics over that. Right. Cause Forge in the dark has mechanical values to desperate, risky or controlled, but you know, yeah, just, just use them as, as terms story position. I really like that. This moves through 
the part of a D&D session, especially when you have a specific mission or target or goal that a lot of parties get bogged down in, which is the approach, which is, okay, we know we're going to do a thing. How are we going to do it? Let's spend three hours coming up with a plan that will definitely get thrown out of the window the first time we actually encounter any resistance. And then a thing that also happens is, I mean, not just D&D, right? But a lot of groups where you're like, okay, we will now role play out the minutia of like getting on the ship and then taking the ship to the location and then reconnoitering and then scouting. And oh, we didn't roll well. Let's wait a day and do it again. And then how do we get in the front door? Like just start with, wow, that was a bad engagement roll. The alarm is blaring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's one of those principles of Forge in the Dark is like just skip to the most exciting part of the first step. <laughs> You know, so if that is the moment where you are like cutting the hull of the ship in order to like sneak on board uh, and, and, you know, commandeer this spaceship like cool, you are cutting you like your plasma cutter is halfway through and you're about to go in, you know, like what is your position when you do that? Um, like who cares about the minutia of like making sure you approach and dock and all those little things where it's like any of these could go wrong, throw a complete wrench in all of your plans and invalidate the last 30 minutes at the table. Right. Like all of those things are going to succeed or you will leave and then find another way in. Right. Right. So just skip this thing that is definitely going to succeed and start at the point when you can't just simply back out. Um, and then what this translates to is it tends to be faster in play, right? Like you can summarize the things that you're like, how you're preparing. And then it quickly translates that into your starting circumstance. Like players will always be like, cool. So like, I'm going to use these three spells and I'm going to sneak and I'm going to find a place to, um, you know, keep a high vantage point and all of those like types of things where it's like, they want to perfectly control every element of the situation so that they're always perfectly controlled. Right. Um, but instead, like you make the die roll and then you find out how well did you do about all those things? You know, is there that perch where you can get your sniper spot? Is there actually a place for you to hide that's effective? Like all those kind of things you find out through this roll. Yeah, this allows you to put the players at a disadvantage or as a player to be at a disadvantage without feeling like you wasted a resource or you're tricked into doing something that wasn't actually a good idea in the first place. It was it was up to the roll. Right. Yeah. Like you did that thing because you are confident and fate or circumstance or misfortune has put you in this bad position or this great position because you did it perfectly right. You use the right amount of resources to get you into that spot. All right. So how do you adapt this outside of Forged in the Dark? So I had to kind of wrap my head around this. Like dungeon crawls are the problem here. <laughs> right like like if you think of a dungeon crawl as like uh, a series of like one room heists <laughs> right like you can kind of like you can get into a problem you know where like you're just making engagement rolls instead of like checking for traps you know um so i think it's better to start with uh engagement rolls on like kind of the more open-ended types of missions you mm -hmm. know like maybe an ambush or a robbery or a heist or a performance or a negotiation right like use it to to kind of figure out um position in in sort of a broader scope thing not just like we're in a 10 foot wide corridor and we're opening a 20 foot wide room and what's on the other side yeah, I like this as a way to sort of take the entire party and have them jump feet first into the thing that they already decided that they are going to do. Because you run into a wall where many games are simulationist, and in order to maintain verisimilitude, you don't just leap forward you have to sort of play out every interaction or thing mm -hmm. that the character does. And this lets you just be like, don't worry about that. Like, you do all the things the the right way or as as best you can and like this one thing goes wrong or doesn't right go exactly um to make that work though i think you need to be a little more fluid in your encounter building right um and then you need to kind of communicate that information in less specific terms right so if if your intelligence gathering about this ambush right is that they're there are going to be six orcs uh, escorting the treasure. Well, okay, that probably needs to be like, there's usually half a dozen guards, 
you know, and then based on what your position is and sort of where you are picking up the action, like maybe two of those guards lie dead and there are four orcs remaining, or maybe, you know, six orcs lie dead and there are six remaining, right? Um, Just depending on what that role means and how you want to interpret that. But like, you need to give yourself some narrative room that isn't always the case when you think of like structured published D&D modules where an encounter is written on the page and defined for you up front. Right. And I think probably there's some experienced GMs right now being like, all right, but if we're skipping the approach, then all of the utility spells and all of the abilities that character that I'm trying to get characters to spend so that they're not showing up like at full health or with all those spell slots available are not getting used up. So I think you want to give an opportunity to be able to spend those resources in order to get bonuses to the engagement role to make sure that you end up in ideally a controlled position when you actually begin playing. Yeah, and actually what's cool about that is like, it gives you broader use of some of those utility spells, Mm -hmm. you know, like you don't have to worry, like, you know, if you have, you know, if maybe the perfect spell would be like, I don't know, feather fall, right? Because you're going to drop in from, from high above. Um, But instead you have invisibility, right? Like, cool. Like you could still get the bonus to your engagement role for using invisibility. Like we have just adjusted the narrative a little bit. So that was the useful spell or like, Oh, it really hurt you that you used invisibility and not feather fall because um, you ended up in a desperate position because of it, you know? Yeah. And it lets you, it gives you more flexibility in terms of the kind of spells that you are going to prepare, but also the kinds of spells that you're going to use. Like I don't usually prepare something like stone shape, Right. Even though that could certainly be very useful in certain kinds of heists, right? But I don't want to worry about like, oh, is the wall too thick or is it not the right kind of stone or is it not stone at all or whatever. But when making that bartering with the GM about the engagement role, I can be like, well, I have stone shape. I'm willing to spend my fourth level slot if that's going to give us a pretty hefty bonus on this engagement role. I mean, certainly there's got to be a stone wall somewhere that we're able to bypass. Right. And they're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Great. Spend that slot and you get a bonus. Yeah. And if, you know, if the role goes poorly, despite your bonus, then maybe it turns out that there wasn't actually a wall that met the needs or the requirements. Right. And like, Oh no, we didn't actually get to use it. You know? Right. Or the other side of that wall was, uh, the acid pit. Yeah. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Didn't tell you there was an upstairs to this dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. You found out. Um, I do think one one interesting way to do this is uh, litigating surprise rounds, which are a thing that are still sort of left in 5th edition, but aren't really well emphasized Mm. or or aren't super well defined in how to, like, introduce them. Um, Like, I, I do like the idea of, like, if you need to be more methodical, like, an engagement role tells you was your approach sufficient to give you a surprise round like controlled right or was it did you stumble into somebody else and you're now surprised desperate or like is it just kind of roll initiative and and sort it out as we go you know risky right is it a jump ball like like it usually is (laughs) exactly right and then when you're doing this you do want to make sure that you're still giving players who shine in the approach a chance to do that outside of combat so that you're not just sort of skipping the exploration pillar or the infil- or infiltration you know the fun stuff maybe for a rogue player and then jumping right into like round one of combat yeah you want to if you if you want to highlight those skills you want your engagement role to set them up to use those skills right yeah and keep in mind that the engagement role doesn't necessarily open to combat right exactly like it it certainly can like you said a control position might mean that you get a surprise round but it could also mean that no one has seen you 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 are not having combat because this is such a successful infiltration and now the rogue can use all of their abilities they're inside there this is what they were made to do and they don't need to worry about uh was i able to use thieves tools on the first lock yes of course you were right exactly (laughs) you won't you won't be flummoxed by the natural one yeah (laughs) (laughs) All right, some people have heard us talk a bit about clocks in Forge in the Dark. What uh, What is a clock? So clocks are just visual representations of obstacles or long-term projects or consequences. They're literally a circle with some lines draw through them to create pieces of a pie to fill in over time. 
Yeah, and I think the important thing to remember here is they might indicate how much time has passed, right? Things might autofill, but they might not. It may have nothing to do with time. It could just be how much, how close are we to completing a thing? Yeah, exactly. Like it could be like in Forge in the Dark games, a lot of times it is the hit points equivalent for enemies. It might be the time to complete a ritual or picking a lock. Uh, it might represent the risk of an addiction, um, you know, morale, like any of those things. Like it doesn't just have to be time or alternatively hit points. Um, I think what's important is that all clocks have a length, um, typically like four, six, eight. Um, I, I guess like the highest ones are like 12. Um, and then they have some consequence associated with them, right? Like some change to the narrative happens when a clock is completed. Right. And that is usually on the table. Like you, if you put a clock out and tell everyone, all right, I'm marking a six clock, you then label the clock. This is what happens when the clock is full. Yeah, exactly. We had so we had an issue with that at our Dark Sun game where our our DM like wrote down a clock, right, and didn't label it, and we thought it was a good clock and it was a bad clock. <laughs> and it was like not adding any tension. <laughs> it was just confusing us. And he was like, Oh, the clock is complete. This happens and I was like, Okay. <laughs> it could have just happened. I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I was like, Oh yeah, the clock is filling. Great. We're doing this right. Yeah, we're getting bailed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we hung in long enough against comes. this obviously yeah. overmatched fight. <laughs> uh, and for longer term projects or things with um, multiple steps, you can link clocks together. So you don't need a 32 clock, right? You have a six clock and then one thing happens or the first thing happens or, oh, the boss changes into their second form, right? And then after that, there's a four clock or an eight clock or whatever. And you can link as many of them together as you want. Yep. And then there's also like opposed clocks, uh, sort of like racing clocks. So like, you know, the uh, if if you are both making a mad scramble to try and um, catch the idol, you know, like or, or catch the snitch, for example. Right. Like you could you and the other the opposition could both have clocks and you are racing to fill your clocks first to complete the objective. Um, or like you could use that for a chase, right? Like if one of you fills your clock, you escape versus get caught, right? So in terms of filling clocks, the PCs can explicitly take actions that are meant to advance the clock, right? And that that's an agreement at the table. I'm going to attack this person. And obviously, if I do damage, that is going to fill the clock. Right. Or maybe they happen automatically. And, you know, it can be when some time passes, the boss takes some damage or is less willing to fight or morale of the opposing army takes a hit or whatever and at the same time can be influenced by actions of the pcs right yeah they they can all contribute to ticking the clock yep you can also kind of have like the unwitting ticking of the clock right a lot of times that's how clocks start is like oh i i drink this uh this drug right okay well let's start like a four clock for your addiction to that drug um, that's a very blades in the dark kind of mechanic, <laughs> um, but like you know, you you could just do things that sort of advance that. Um, it's a great way, like, of tracking like corruption or things like that as well. Yeah, or long term story consequences, right? Like, I intimidate. Great, you had a very successful intimidation, but I'm starting a four o'clock on this person hating you. Right. Yep. Okay, so why do we like using these? I like the visual representation, like. I like that you can see what the goal is there on the table, but also I like that when you fill in a piece of the clock, it really feels like visceral progress. You you can see exactly what you accomplished by the action that you took. Yeah, I, I like that you know where you stand. Um, like that adds that adds tension. <laughs> right mm-hmm. like like you have this element of like oh no we only need two more ticks like what can i do in this exact moment can i push to like just get us over the edge and like end this encounter or finish this fight or you know like save the whatever like grab the macguffin complete the ritual yeah it it really like pulls back the curtain on something that in for example D is almost always hidden which is how many hit points does the boss have left right you know, but you're just putting it out on the table and like, this is how many, this is how close they are to being defeated. And now you can go, all right, do I use my big, my big, huge power? Do I make and the ultimate sacrifice? Is that going to be worth it? Like, I think one of the reasons people don't like 
rush at a at a dragon and try to take them out is you assume that you're going to die for nothing right <laughs> but if you've beaten down the dragon and there's one or two ticks left yeah i think i might sacrifice myself for to defeat a, a dragon and deal the killing blow yeah that sounds awesome yeah exactly or you know like alternatively like if it is trying to complete a ritual right like i might like over channel my magical power and risk mm-hmm. like permanent harm to myself or, or something like that in order to like snap the portal closed before they can get to it you know something like that right it really does add, add tension like everyone has run the scenario where there are hostages and the bad guys are going to murder the hostages or sacrifice them or whatever and you have to go save them but it's just sort of up in the air when the evil cleric is going to kick them into the volcano right right <laughs> But you, exactly. put a, you put a clock on there and you're like, oh no, there's one tick and they're going to kick them in the volcano. Now I know that I, we have to do literally everything we possibly can in order to save them rather than handling whatever other objective is going on. Right. And I, I think like this is where in D&D like you have the six second round and like it seems it seems almost weird like how quickly some things happen and how slowly things happen. But like it's like you said, like you're going to kick the NPC into the volcano. Like that is something that you probably assessed immediately upon walking into the room that like the evil cleric was going to do that if things go too badly. And now that clock is measuring just how bad do things look to that cleric. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like one more round, like if it keeps going this way, sure seems like we're going to be fishing our, uh, our NPC buddy out of the lava. (laughs) it's fine there <laughs> it's, it's worked for arnold <laughs> it's a fire drink we're good okay. exactly <laughs> we painted them green and now they don't know right dummies <laughs> all right so how do you adapt clocks to use in other games so i i am strongly believe that you should not get rid of hit points agree <laughs> that's that's too much of like a of a rebuild of like a D or, or just too many games like but use it to represent damage as well right like use the clock as your visual representation of their status right um call it wounds or, or whatever right and like just take your your hit point total and when they're roughly at a quarter make sure that it is marked a quarter and when they're roughly at a half that's half marked you know like just do it kind of that way give give the players a visual representation of like oh yeah he's looking weaker because there's nothing more frustrating to me as a player than like oh you said he looked weak well yeah he looked weak for him he had 170 hit points left you know and i'm like okay well i'm glad that i ran up and risked myself to do an extra d6 damage right uh yeah yeah, it's actually pretty easy to sort of look at the hit points like all right this boss has 300 hit points so i'm gonna make a six clock and each one's 50 hit points i'm not writing that down but just in my head each time they deal about 50 hit points that's what i'm gonna fill in a tick on the clock yeah exactly or or if you want like you know um a great way to run like super like hydra type enemies right that that they have pieces of them that might have hit points is when they deal a burst of damage up to that total it ticks the clock Mm -hmm. right and then as you feel that burst damage like it it makes them a little stronger because you have to get over a threshold like it's basically a damage resistance thing um but it can make a you know like if you were to attack a warforged colossus for example like it sure doesn't seem like doing 12 damage is going to affect a warforged colossus at all right right but Knocking it in the knee sure might if you hit it hard enough. Um, this is also a great way to represent mooks and hordes and mass combat. Um, is just give them um, ticks on a clock and uh, they they stop fighting, they retreat, they retire, uh, they die whenever those t- those ticks are completed. Right, and that's great for a squad of five undead or five thousand enemy soldiers. You can yeah, still it, use a four clock or six clock or whatever. Right, you just need to do a little bit more in order to get that tick. Right. Uh, it's also a good way to indicate environmental effects. Like I think about layer actions, you know, in 5e, it sort of happens every round on initiative 20. But you think about something like in the Princess Bride, they're in the fire swamp and you get that like spouting sound before the flame jet comes up. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy to be like, hey, there's a there's a four o'clock and this ticks every round. And when this fills, you know, you're getting flame jets. You can predict that. Right. I also like it as a way to make it very clear what the alternative combat objectives are in your battle. Like we talk about this a lot. Don't have it just be kill the bad guys. There should be other things that are vying for their attention. But sometimes it's hard to telegraph 
to let everyone know that like, hey, this ritual over here is actually the thing that you need to stop or you need to open this door or whatever before this fills in with water and but you still need to fight the sharks throw multiple clocks on the table and now people have to decide where they're going to focus their efforts yeah and uh, like i mean to angelo's credit right like he inspired this topic like he's he fixed the second clock um which was like a teleportation circle was being like demolished and in four clocks it was on or in four ticks it was unrecoverable then we had to start thinking like how many ticks can we waste dealing with these bad guys versus Mm -hmm. how many like how desperately do we need to get there to try and impede its progress versus try to actually stop this mechanism you know and and i i really liked the way that this combat played out because as soon as we come in the room like it's a pretty narrow room there are a bunch of bad guys in there uh, and on the far side there's a teleportation circle that's being destroyed boom four o'clock right and immediately your rogue was like i'm not thinking about who i need to stab i'm thinking <laughs> yeah. about right you're counting squares and like do i have enough movement to get to the circle well i bet it was i don't have enough movement so i should stab right, right. and then after that it was like <laughs> okay should i get there on this turn or should i do something on this turn (laughs) like like we we were having a a kind of more of a tactical conversation around this mechanism that we otherwise would have just ran towards and like stumbled around and i think it sort of honed the tactical conversation because we probably would have started off with like all right there's six enemies in here which one do we focus fire on? I guess it'll be whichever one we hit first, or these guys look a little weaker, maybe they should take them out, or that's a big one, or whatever. And suddenly it stopped being about the individual abilities of the monsters in the room. It was, how do we move these monsters out of the way and still handle them and not get murdered by them, but so that we can focus on the actual objective? Right. And, and I like, not that you can't do that without a clock, right? But I, I just think the clock as the visual representation of that, like, just keeps it front and center of, like, this is the focus. This is the ticking timer. This is the thing that has to be handled, right? Like, it, it like it's a subtle change in your thinking, but it's important, and it, it, it keeps it front and center. Right. I think it is very telling that the only thing that changed from a regular D&D combat was one four clock. Right. And it exactly. had all those repercussions. Exactly. Um, it is also a great way to track like long term things, right? And put them on the character sheet, right? So if you if you tell a character, hey, like give yourself a six clock for this project that you're interested, this research that you're doing, right? When you give them a chance to have downtime, they're going to spend their time on that clock. <laughs> you know, or if it's um if it's a great way to like write down your like standing with different factions, right? Like if you are antagonizing a faction, well, like they get a clock. And if it goes to a certain point, they go to war. Uh, if you're befriending a faction, they become allies. And like it, it gives you an easy way to track that stuff that isn't like firm mechanics, but is just a visual indicator for everybody to kind of know how they stand and also remind you that like this was important. Yeah. Did the uh, waiter at the our favorite tavern fall in love with me yet? Do, yeah. <laughs> do I need to do more? Oh. Well, let's go to the clock. I definitely need to do more. Hang on. In my Always Sunny RPG, it's the waitress <laughs> and you're Charlie. <laughs> uh, or even, you know, do I get a promotion yet? Right. Well, let's, let's get a promotion clock on there. Yeah. Have we, uh, have, we, have we been awarded more territory in our Acquisitions Inc. franchise? No. No, of course not. You have not. <laughs> it's counting down, actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> Until we open a new franchise to compete with you. So you mentioned it already, but um, downtime is the third rule set that we want to steal from Forge in the Dark. And what is it that's interesting about it? So every Forge in the Dark game to date, um, not every single game ever, because uh, I know some other ones are in progress, but they have two phases of play. Uh, you have your mission phase and your downtime. So your mission is your adventure, right? Uh, it is your heist. It is your job. It is your mission. Um, and then your downtime is the stuff you do when you get back to base, when you get back to town, when you get back to your ship, when you get back to camp, you know, when you, when you have a second to like, kind of, uh, like be free, you know, like be a character in the world rather than necessarily being like a hard slogging adventure for every, every minute of the day. Yeah. This also includes things like free play scenes where you're, you're just doing vignettes of what life is like back in town or what do you do when you're not, you know, spending six seconds swinging your sword. Right. Exactly. 
you know like this is a it's a thing that like is alluded to in the dmg and like different supplements now in, in 5e have like tried to build in downtime rules but honestly like i've never seen a set of downtime rules that made me want to spend time in downtime the way that like forge in the dark games do like i playing stream of blades like all i wanted to do was hang out at camp with our characters the missions were almost like oh god we got to do this one again huh i mean so it really was like being in the army Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah the um in 5e xanathar's guide has um a bunch of rules for downtime but I'm, i'm they're good additions to the game but there are a lot of them where you sort of look at it and go oh okay i'm gonna make four die rolls and that means four weeks have passed and we'll just hand wave the time and now we'll jump into the next mission and i have a magic item yeah that always seems to be the variable in those things it's either gold spent gold earned or time Mm -hmm. right and like what i like about the downtime activities in forge in the dark games is like first of all they're meant to restore your resources right like that's how you recover stress and things like that which we don't necessarily want to copy but like that's also the way that you like invest in long-term projects right like it's the way that you cultivate your contacts or develop your research or you know forge a magic item you know um like they aren't they aren't necessarily you're not necessarily rolling every time to figure out like what what of your limited D D resource variable levers did got pulled this time it's more like what did you accomplish towards that goal that you've been working on for a long time in this period jokes on you turns out uh the lever i pulled was i ran out of glass vials oh who knew (laughs) so next mission (laughs) we're gonna knock off a glazer (laughs) fortunately we're playing a dark sun and the only thing we have an abundance of are sand and heat oh good Also, remember that anyone here during downtime can call for a, fl- a free play scene. It's not just the GM being like, all right, you are talking to this person now or here are the NPCs I'm presenting you with. Any of the players can be like, hey, we did a thing or something important happened or there was a moment of tension back in that dungeon and I want to talk about it or I want to play it out or like let's sit down at the tavern and while we're drinking, I want to see our characters talk about that. Yeah. And and I think one of the reasons that maybe some people shy away from this is it it can feel to numbers-oriented players like you're kind of wasting time. But if you actually use clocks here, then you can incorporate uh, mechanics or longer-term consequences to these kinds of conversations. You know, I sat down and I had uh, a sort of like, you know, three-minute heart-to-heart with the bartender. How does that affect our relationship? I'll throw a clock on both my relationship with the bartender. Mm-hmm. And, and for the interpersonal stuff, right, like between party members, inspiration is a great way to uh, to like give a, give a little bit of a benefit for that. Right. If you if you have a great role playing scene, like just give inspiration for the two of them or start a clock for their friendship as PCs with each other. Um, And when you fill that, like they get inspiration when they uh, help each other, something like that. Right. You can add or remove bonds or flaws or, you know, ideals or anything like that from your sheet as well. Um, I, I. So that's one of the things that I love about it. Um, I also like that it lets you kind of like zoom your your story lens out a bit and like cover a few days or a few weeks and like a couple hours of game time without like without losing the weight you know like like you said like downtime where you just roll dice on a table in xanathar's guide and find out you lost four weeks you know in your lab like that doesn't actually feel like all that expensive of a cost (laughs) you know like i didn't feel like i spent four weeks doing anything you know like we just I don't know, advance the calendar, I guess. Yeah, I want to do that on uh, Discord or over email between sessions. I don't want to waste any in-game time doing that. Yeah, exactly. And and now we can actually give some some in-game heft to, to that stuff, you know, just with short scenes and kind of a little bit of structure. Mm-hmm. And it does encourage uh, some role play. It encourages character development. And it does do a good job of handing narrative control over to uh, the players in a space where it's definitely not going to derail any GM's pre-planned plot. Yeah, you you could have, you know, measured every square foot of a dungeon. It does. It takes nothing away from that to have a bunch of free play scenes back in town or even in the dungeon during camp. Yeah, 
I, I think in adapting it for D&D, what's super important here is that downtime is safe time, right? Like the players have narrative control. Like there are guardrails on how bad things can go for them <laughs> in their downtime, right? Like in anything particularly risky would be more of like a mission or an adventure. And like, that's where they will deal with those risks but like if you're in downtime like you can split the party like it's fine you're not going to get kidnapped and held for ransom in downtime you know like there's there's just has to be sort of an understanding because like otherwise like the characters are going to be like cool i sit in the tavern for three days uh we all sleep in the same room and we never take our armor off i i've I've got you gm you're never going to trick me again you know yeah we sit in a strong box with our gold in it what do you think we are dummies come on <laughs> yeah, like a dragon <laughs> i fortify this tavern i start i start my dungeon <laughs> so you certainly can't just completely open this up and any player can say hey i want to do this thing you know and more experienced groups are probably able to do that more easily but you also can just give your players a few standard options of what they're going to be able to do when they got back to town or you know their ship or wherever it is that they actually lay low for a while and you can actually look at Xanathar's guide for a basic list of things that you might want to do, if not necessarily how you want to do those things. You can also steal just from the list of downtime activities from the uh, Forge in the Dark game that is probably closest in genre to the game that you're playing. Yeah, I mean, those are things like, um, you know, work on a long-term project or like blow off some steam or things like that, you know, like just generic kind of narrative oriented words that give you a prompt for kind of a little bit of role play and then you don't necessarily even need a strong mechanical influence like like i said like inspiration is great or maybe like a healing potion to represent like hey you spent your time like indulging your vices and came away with an extra healing potion or making contacts right yeah like we're closer to NPCs and we'll be able to leverage them later, which is great because it ties people closer to the story that a GM is telling. Anyway, it gives, and it gives players what they feel like is a real resource, but actually it's tricking them into role-playing with an NPC. Ha <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ideally you trick them into role-playing with other player characters. Oh dear Lord. <laughs> what do we do now? Oh, we go to our friendly merchant shop and then we lock the doors and we take his gold and put it in our chest so it's safe too and then we sit on it and keep watch (laughs) we start our dungeon here that's right don't worry mort we got you (laughs) um the thing that i would be careful of here is like um keep in mind like it's it's D and things like that like your your resource cycle refreshes on the long rest like on the daily basis like you don't necessarily want to interfere with that with your downtime activities right like you you get all of your resources back on a daily basis like that's not the purpose of downtime like you don't want to try and squeeze that into a dungeon crawl type environment where now you've got to go back to town and you know indulge your vices to get your yeah. your <laughs> spells back like as much fun as i think that would be like it's probably a bigger shift in your D game than you expected i mean i'm a rage mage that's how i prep spells <laughs> pure chaos sorcerer (laughs) so let us know if you like this series Um, i think there's definitely other games where we have bits of mechanics that we love to rip out if this is something that interests you um that you like us covering like we can definitely expand this uh otherwise i guess this is a one-off and forge in the dark is just the best game to do it woo Do you hear that, Ishan? I don't, because for some reason, these clocks don't actually tick on their own or make sounds. We just fill them in when appropriate. Well, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge and find out what's at the end of that clock when it fills. It's not labeled. Why isn't it labeled? (laughs) But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And don't forget to join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. They are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. All of the products are crafted to look like 
spellbooks, scroll cases, codexes, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. And that, of course, we stuff in a chest and then we sit on top of it so nobody can steal it from us. Exactly. I, I do bring it out from time to time to play my games with. Yeah, and then sucker. it goes right back into the chest <laughs> so that no adventurers come by and steal it. Um, Wait, no, are, we, actually, are we NPCs? Crap. We're, are we NPCs? Damn it. Uh, I, we're hoping adventurers don't steal our stuff. I think that makes us NPCs. Oh, oh that sucks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm putting an order into the Elderwood Academy to make it worth their time. <laughs> Uh, we actually just got a uh, photo last week. Um, uh, one of our listeners got a, an Elderwood scroll rolling tray for Christmas. And uh, matching very cool looking Phoenix dice. Exactly. Um, so uh, the full Elderwood collection in, um, in red with some gold on it. I liked it a lot. It photographed really well too, honestly. Like, no, you it, guys just take mine, mine for granted. You're like, oh yeah, no, it's that rolling tray. But it's actually a really cool rolling tray. It's very useful. I mean, I have been plotting to steal it from you. <laughs> okay, <So>. well, <laughs> just as soon as you take your armor off and then nod off for just a moment, engagement roll, sir. Engagement <laughs> roll. <laughs> All right, so you can find the scroll rolling tray and the phoenix dice in many different varieties at elderwordacademy.com/slash/don't-split. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Night Fox, a.k.a. Francois Toulour, a.k.a. the uh, villain from Ocean's 12. <laughs> the, the French guy? Uh, French-Italian baron, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he was mentored by the renowned thief, Gaspar Lamarck, uh, into the world's greatest thief, uh, or at least second greatest thief behind one Danny Ocean. So if you have not seen the movie, one, go watch the movie. But two, uh, he's very wealthy. He has lots of influence, uh, but he is also very skilled in acrobatics and has a flair for the dramatic. Also revenge. Yeah. Also revenge. <laughs> also petty. Also egotistical and spiteful. Uh, yeah. Hubris is his downfall. Uh, yeah, and also just kind of not seeing that Danny Ocean was going to cheat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he was in it for the game not for winning huh <laughs> that second movie actually wasn't great <laughs> but go watch it anyway so that you're in the same uh, box as us alright so what is the build so the build is Thief Rogue 17 College of Whispers Bard 3 so from Bard we'll get Bardic Inspiration um charisma modifier number of times per day which is uh nice to help an ally out who's you know just not quite as stealthy as you or not quite as acrobatic i mean but who would be right yeah i mean and also like the night fox is pretty attractive you can go ahead and bump that charisma to 20 <laughs> you got jack of all trades because you're good at pretty much everything you have second level spells lean heavily into utility spells because that's your bread and butter You'll get expertise, uh, acrobatics, and maybe persuasion. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get psychic blades. So you can use those inspirations if you're working on your own to deal an additional 2d6 damage on a hit. Uh, which I like as the uh, like the egotistical thief, you know? Like he only really uses his inspiration for himself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like you're twisting the knife, right? But it's the metaphorical knife. Right, exactly. Um, and then also at third level, you'll get words of terror, which after talking to somebody for one minute, you can attempt to frighten them on a wisdom save. And they don't know if you attempted this when they're successful. So uh, I feel like that's sort of his, I know he doesn't really talk for a minute, but like, you know, his kind of like calling card, leaving the little fox behind, like mm -hmm. it kind of like is meant to strike fear into, into people. Like, I, I feel like that fits, you know? Yeah. I got in this time. I can get in any time that I want. Right. I can reach out and touch you, you know. Um, then from Thief, we will get uh, four more expertises. Uh, let's see. You covered acrobatics and persuasion. So we'll go ahead and take stealth, probably thieves tools, uh, deception, maybe even performance. Yeah, maybe not perception because he does get caught. He does get caught. <laughs> uh, athletics would also be very fitting. Mm-hmm um you know for that climb uh and then you will get 9d6 sneak attack damage that's a lot 
Uh, we'll get Thieves Cant and Cunning Action. And then uh, the interesting thing from Thief is Fast Hands. So you can make a sleight of hand, a Thieves Tools, or a Use Object action as a bonus action. Um, and then second story work, you can climb at full speed. You'll get Uncanny Dodge and Evasion in order to stay out of tough situations. And at nine, you get Supreme Sneak. So advantage on those stealth checks if you move at half speed. If you're combining that with... Uh, expertise you're going to be very hard to spot especially once you get to level 11 when you get reliable talents and never roll less than a 10 on uh, your proficiencies at level 13 you'll get use magic device uh, so you can ignore the requirements for using any magic device this is this is mostly for being able to use spells and and things that allow you to cast spells uh yeah, sorry, scrolls, scrolls mm-hmm. and things that let you cast spells um but you know like fitting that you know the rich baron who has access to anything he wants can also just use all those magic items if he needs them yeah huh uh a wand yeah, that's mm-hmm. fine. One of, okay, one of those. Yeah, spend a couple charges. You'll get blind scent so that you can actually go in with no light whatsoever. And then eventually you'll get slippery mind for proficiency in wisdom saving throws because in D&D when you trip uh, an alarm, often there's a hold person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, And then the thing that I really like here, and I can't believe we haven't actually highlighted this before, the Thief at 17, your capstone here, will be Thieves' Reflexes. Uh, You take two turns in the first round of combat. Your first turn is at your initiative, and your second is at your initiative minus 10. Now, with Jack of All Trades, you're adding half your proficiency to your initiative. You know, you'll have a plus five or plus six decks. Like, you're probably going first anyway. But it's interesting because that means you can, on your first turn of the first round, cunning action, sprint forward, pick up the object that you're stealing, and then on your second turn of the round, just fuck off with it. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're feeling spiteful, you can sneak attack on your first turn and then sneak attack on your second turn. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I guess if you want to be a combat thief. (laughs) All right. uh, What do you think in terms of leveling order? I I think this one starts Rogue One, uh, then takes your bard levels and then finishes out Rogue. Makes sense. You dabble, you dabble a little more. No, no, I was right the first time. Exactly. All right, so before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And don't forget, we are getting frighteningly close to a Forgotten Realm setting episode. Yay? I guess donate some money if you really want to see that happen. You know, I'm actually really looking forward to spending some time talking about, you know, El Munster and Miss Strara and, you know, the old gang, right? Uh, uh, Drizzle. Oh, I love Drizzle. Okay. (laughs) And, uh... And, uh, Borinar. um, Yeah. Right. And Cattle Prod? I don't don't remember Bulger's Gate? (laughs) Bulger's Wheat? Uh, yes, in Knee Deep, the city of splendors. Yeah, and uh, never summer, never spring, never spring. No, f- that place. <laughs> <laughs> Icewind Donald, I don't know. <laughs> we really need to work on that before we actually record an episode. <laughs> It'll be better than that, we promise. <laughs> You want to uh, <laughs> you want to do a little preview of next week's episode by retconning <laughs> that whole conversation? That's a great idea, and we will in fact be talking about retconning. And in the character creation forge, we're building the self forged. Well, that's it for episode two thirty seven of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane and I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you this week by D and D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons and Dragons. You can use it to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. D&D Beyond has lots of awesome content for free, like the D&D Basic Rules, articles from writers like James J. Heck, and videos from Todd Kenrick. And they are always adding new content, adding new features. They are continuing to refine the encounter builder, as well as uh, getting all those... um, uh, Eberron rising for the last war bugs sorted out look it keeps getting better and better and 
I'm terrified of the day when I'm completely dependent on it. Uh, that day is today. Yeah, <laughs> I, here we are. I, I haven't taken a D&D book off a shelf in a year. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than reading it for the review, it goes right on the shelf and it never comes out. I would much rather just use the search bar rather mm-hmm. than the non-existent indexes in some of these dnz books yep yep that's the thing it's it's like and it's also it's great for searching through adventures too if you're looking for like you know oh you see a rule and you want to see it in use go straight to that encounter in the adventure it's just very easy yeah spend a little time like do yourself a favor and spend a little time looking through all the filters available on like monsters or, or magic items you can search very specifically for things like i was actually like what gives you a bonus to constitution saving throws what mm. gives you a bonus to all saving throws? And those are all options, and you can was find lo- those items. I was looking for what gives me resistance or immunity to necrotic damage. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Not a whole lot, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, three items all require attunement. <laughs> Going to be a tough sell for old Shaner. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if that sounds cool, you can check it all out at dndbeyond.com.